how can you tell if something works? How can you tell if something is working? You can tell if it works by seeing if it's working. You don't have to be an electrician to know that if your TV is, is showing images and playing movies and, and you can hear what the people are saying on the TV, it's working. And you don't need to be a mechanic to know that when you crank the key or press the button and the engine roars to life and it goes forward, backward, it turns, stops on your command, it's working. The same principle can be applied to more serious and interpersonal situations. How do you know that a parent is loving their child? Because they say, I love my child. But then you watch them as they are constantly yelling, as they don't feed their child, as, as they abuse their child. You, you would say, that's not loving your child, that's abusing your child. But if you see a parent who spends time with their children, teaches them right from wrong, sacrifices their time, energy, and money for their child's well-being, raising them up in godliness, they wouldn't have to say a word. And you would know that parent loves their child very much. And it's actually the same with faith. What does authentic faith in Christ look like? This is an important question for us to ask because we live in a world where the most common stereotypes associated with Christians are argumentative, judgmental, hypocritical, and listen, I know that the world will always call certain forms of biblical love hateful or judgmental, but should we really be so naive to dismiss every accusation to our character as stupidity? This isn't just from outside the church, but it's also within it. It's very easy to become a group of people who just talk about Jesus, but don't really live like him. Oftentimes, our lives do not look like Christ. We need the constant reminder of what true faith looks like. We need to walk the talk. And so we find ourselves in the passage that Aaron read earlier, James chapter 2, where in the letter of James, it was written by James, the brother of Jesus, around 43 AD, so probably the oldest book in the New Testament. He wrote it to Christians who were suffering from persecution. These Christians were Jewish Christians, meaning they, they were Jews who had become Christians, people who were once under the law, now liberated from it. They had put their faith in Christ, and they are now freed from the shackles of the law. And as people who are no longer under the law, they may have decided that it no longer matters really how they live. Since they're saved, they can just recline and chill. But listen, if the only thing that matters in the Christian life is the singular moment where one is saved, 
then the entire letter of James would never have been written. But it was. And nearly the entire letter is pressing the notion that Christians must be doers of the word, not just hearers. We must practice godliness, not just read about it. He really narrows in on this theme in chapter 1, verse 19, where he discusses what it looks like to be doers of the word, and he describes pure religion as going out and visiting orphans and and widows and others who are afflicted, actually serving and sacrificing and loving others. He continues in chapter 2, explaining how Christians are to treat others without partiality. This is how they ought to live out their faith, by loving their neighbor as themselves. And James ends that section by saying in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. It's kind of a confusing statement. He said it before, judgment and law. He's writing to people who have been saved from judgment and and freed from the burden of the law. But James says that they're under the law of liberty. Yes, they are liberated, but being accepted by God does not end one's obligation to obey him. This, This is what James is saying. He's saying that saving faith actually looks a certain way. And so this leads to our passage this morning, which is really the theological thread that kind of binds the rest of the book together. So, if you are only going to remember one thing from this message, remember this, and it's written at the top of your paper. True faith in Christ is exhibited through good deeds. In other words, True faith is made visible through good works in the Christian life. Like the TV and the car. How do you know that faith works? By its works. Because true faith is made visible by good works. He's showing us what true saving faith looks like because as was the struggle then, so it is now. That oftentimes our actions don't accord with our beliefs. So we're going to examine three types of faith this morning. We're going to examine dead faith. We're going to examine saving faith. And then we're going to examine our own faith. The way that this passage breaks down is like this. James gives his thesis and an illustration in verses 14 through 17. He answers a challenge in 18 and 19 gives some biblical examples in 20 to 25, and concludes again with his thesis in verse 26. But all of this is really just to drive home the point that true faith in Christ has worked. So we are going to walk through the argument as he presents it, but but as we do so, we're going to look at those distinctions between what James calls dead faith and true saving faith. So first, as we look at this first section, we're going to talk about dead faith. Look down with me at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James presents his readers and us with two rhetorical questions, right? What, what good is it if someone says he has faith, but does not have any works? And can that faith save him? The implied answers are, it's no good, and no. When James refers to works, he is talking about actions that one does. He's already referred to this as being slow to speak, slow to anger, visiting widows and orphans and not showing partiality, loving your neighbor, etc. These are actions that one does that are good according to who God is and what he commands. So look at how verse 14 is written. If someone says he has faith, but has no works. He's talking about someone claiming to have faith. Can that faith save him? Now it's important to recognize here that James is not saying faith is not able to save someone, but that faith, that hypothetical, workless, imposter of a faith cannot save anybody. Most modern English translations make that clear Uh, when they translate the phrase, can that faith save him, or can such faith save him. This can be less clear in some other translations, like in the King James Version, it just says, can faith save him? So I just want to point out that there actually is an article there that kind of calls back to the faith that someone claims to have, so it's probably better translated, can that faith save him? That dead faith, can that useless, hypothetical faith save someone? No. Like any good pastor, James uses an illustration to express his point with greater weight. Suppose there's someone in rags and without food, clearly in great need. What if you look at that person dead in the eye and say, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them any clothes or food? Imagine going up to someone on the other side of the street, begging for money, putting your hand on their shoulder and just saying, hang in there, and then walking away. James says, what good is that? He's giving an example of someone who may claim to have faith and has no works to show how unhelpful it is. It does not help the body. It does not glorify the name of God. It does not do any good. But more importantly, James is using this striking imagery to basically say that a faith without works is just as unable to save your soul as your kind words are unable to heal a man who's dying of hunger. It is useless. So in verse 17, he concludes, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that's what dead faith is. Empty words without works. It is a claim with no actual evidence. You know, Jesus uses a very similar illustration to convey a very similar point. No doubt James had this in mind when Jesus explained how at the time of final judgment, All the people will be gathered before him, and he will separate them. 
the sheep from the goats. It's a terrifying and sobering thought that you will bend a knee before King Jesus, all of you will, and so will everyone you know, and the sheep, his people, he will put at his right, and it says that the goats, everyone else, he will put at his left. And he will say to them, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will say, what? When? When? Jesus, we never saw you on the side of the road. We never saw you. What are you talking about? And he will say, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The point is not that if you don't give your money or food to every homeless person you see, you are going to hell. The point is that people who profess Christ with their mouths only and not with their actions do not know Jesus because Jesus transforms the entire person. What he says, what they do, what they believe, and what they desire. Church, this faith, that James is describing is no faith at all. If that, hasn't, or if that isn't clear now, it will be abundantly clear when the king judges and divides those with true faith from those with fraudulent faith. It's sheep and goats. It's living and dead. You can write your statement of faith. You can color code it. You can recite it every day. You could be someone who has claimed to be a Christian their entire life. You can be a student at seminary, learning the intricacies of Greek and those complex attributes of God. You, you, you can say all of these things. You can have a grin on your face as you bend your knee before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord. The reality is that if your faith is not evident from the way you live, you are just indulging in a sophisticated form of self-deception. It's useless. It's dead. Instead of a running car, it's scrap metal. It doesn't work. What about saving faith? That's what we're going to focus on as we continue down James' argument. Look down with verse, at verse 18. This is when he introduces an opponent a hypothetical opponent. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. After reading verses 14 through 17 above, there are some questions that naturally rise up in our minds. Are you really going to say that someone needs faith plus works to be saved? James, that's not what Paul says. We can see that James anticipated these questions. If you look at verse 18, he introduces someone objecting. Hey, you have faith and I have works. Someone may have faith, I have works. People have different gifts, but we're all Christians. James responds by clarifying the relationship between faith and works. 
This is the second part of verse 18. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So they're not mutually exclusive gifts. They're necessary realities for every single Christian. He uses the word show to relate faith and works, not add. A justified person is not someone who has faith plus works, but someone who has faith shown by their works. Works are faith made visible. Knowing your stuff does not make you a Christian. Why? The demons know their stuff. There's an example of belief without trust. They are great theologians, but they despise God. And the only difference between the man with no works and the demon is that the demon logically shudders in terror of God because they know that they're an enemy of the all-powerful, sovereign Lord. Whereas the person with no works lives a life of self-deception, thinking that they are God's friend even as they drag his name through the mud with their works. So this is what James is getting at. Saving faith is proven by works. We could say it's completed by works or made visible by works. You, you just don't separate them. This is where James pulls out his Bible and he brings his point all the way home. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So James uses Abraham as an example of someone who had true saving faith. And his faith is completed by his works. As a reminder, Abraham was a man who God came to and told him that he would be a great nation. Abraham was unable to have children, but when he believed God, God counted that to him as righteousness. He reckoned that belief as righteousness. Abraham, you are righteous. Later, Abraham is blessed with his own son, Isaac. And God tells him to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. It's a test. And Abraham, by faith, was willing to sacrifice his only son, his, his only heir, the, the key to the promise, because God told him to. And so the famous passage, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, is fulfilled by his willingness to offer up his one and only son. It's fulfilled, not like a prophecy that came to pass, but like a reality that was expressed in its fullness. This formerly pagan man Abraham was declared righteous by faith and that reality, the reality that, that of a transformed heart was brought to completion when it was made visible by his willingness to give everything he had to the Lord. He also brings up Rahab 
who was a prostitute that hid the Israel spies from the guards and sent them out by another way. And she believed and feared in the name of the Lord. And her life, actually her whole family was spared when Israel went through on their conquest. So James' point really reaches its crux in verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is a very controversial statement and we need to unpack it carefully. First, why is it so controversial? It's controversial because it appears to directly contradict the very clear teaching in Scripture that a person is justified by faith alone. As a matter of fact, look back down at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Keep looking at it while I read a verse from Paul. This is Romans 3.28. Keep looking down. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. A person is justified by works and not faith alone. One is justified by faith apart from works. These two phrases are clearly at enmity with one another if they're stripped from their context, right? I want you to stay with me here because this is a very important point. This, this has to do with how someone gets saved. This has to do with how one is made right with God. So before we dive too deep into this, let's make sure we understand what James is definitely not saying when he says that someone is justified, made righteous by works and not faith alone. He is not saying that works are the final step for one to be saved. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 21, he refers to the implanted word, which is the gospel message. And he says that it's able to save you. Also, just before our passage in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. James is definitely not advocating for some sort of works righteousness model he definitely knows that no one can earn their righteousness before God. No one can climb to heaven. He knows that. He knows that everyone will fail. As a matter of fact, it's James in the Jerusalem Council, which is Acts chapter 15, when there's this big debate about if Gentiles should have to get circumcised when they become Christians because that's the Jewish thing to do according to the law. That's a good thing to do. And James is the one who stands up and from Scripture proves that they should not have to do this work of the law because they should not be burdened with a work that you don't have to do to be saved. That was James. And that was before this. So what, what does he mean though? when he says this? And does it contradict Paul's teaching of being justified by faith alone? I just want to give two, uh, highlight two reasons why they, they actually aren't in conflict. First, the faith that Paul refers to is different from the faith alone that James is referring to. Which makes sense, right? James has been describing what saving faith is set in contrast with that faith, that, that useless faith, dead 
faith. When James specifies that someone is not justified by faith alone, he's emphatically announcing that a person cannot be saved with that dead faith, faith without works. Remember, this is the hypocritical faith of demons. It's not true and ultimate trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of one's soul. Paul, on the other hand, is describing saving faith. And of course, one is saved by true faith in Christ. So the first reason why there's no conflict between them is because James is talking about dead faith and Paul is talking about saving faith. Second, James is using the word justified in a different way that Paul uses it. Well, why does this matter? It matters because James still says that, that someone is justified by works, right? So what does he mean when he says justified? We know that. That's just, you are not made righteous by works, right? That's what Paul says. Look at how James has already used the word justified in verse 21. Abraham was justified when he offered his son on the altar. Faith was active along with his works and completed by his works. And this fulfilled or made visible the promise that when Abraham believed, it was counted to him as righteousness. James uses the word justified more in the sense of vindication or validation. So Abraham's faith was reckoned as righteousness in Genesis 15, but, but it was validated as such in Genesis 22 when he offered his son on the altar. Here's why I say that. The word is often translated this way as vindicated, meaning shown to be righteous. And James has already set this theme of the testing of, the, of one's faith earlier in the book, right? In chapter one, that's what it's all about. So the idea of vindication is actually thematically consistent. Moreover, if you look back at verse 18, James tells his opponent that he will show his faith by his works. And in fact, the passage that James refers to where Abraham is willing to offer up his son concludes with the angel of the Lord stopping Abraham as he has the dagger in the sky and, and saying, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What Abraham was doing was demonstrating the faith that had already been credited to him as righteousness. So, you still with me? While Paul is using justified to describe the instant that someone is declared righteous, James is using it to describe the proving or the showing to be righteous of someone who has already been declared righteous. They are talking about different things when they refer to faith, and they even mean different things when they say justify. And there's much more that could be said here, but, but this is really, this, this is just the reality of the ambiguity of language. And so words can have nuanced meanings. So, so to understand what James and Paul are saying, the best thing isn't to just pluck two verses out of context and smack them on top of each other, but, but to read them in their context. And when we do that, we understand how they work together. So to uh, 
tie up this little discourse, I want you to keep a finger at James and turn left a few books to Ephesians chapter 2. This is probably the most clear, powerful, concise passage that describes conversion, which means someone becoming a Christian. This is Paul, and after describing in verses 1 through 4 that we're dead in our sins, living however we want to, subject to the wrath of God and eternity and hell, Paul writes, starting in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. James is micro-focused on that last part. God's work in you does not yield obsolescence. His work is reflected in those he saves. You don't separate verse 10 from 1 through 9. You can't separate that. If you separate faith from works, then you separate promise from purpose. And what you're doing is you're saying that God is a liar. James is not contradicting Paul. He's correcting a misunderstanding of Paul. Christians must be doers of the word. So what Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, or any religion teaches you have to accomplish X or Y before you can be saved do is they strip this verse from its context and ignore all the other passages that teach that people are saved by faith alone and not works. But we cannot sacrifice any of Scripture for the sake of our religious creeds. We stand on God's word, not our own. And if the Bible really is God's word, even if it's something in it seems difficult, it will never contradict itself. God is not a liar, and so his word is completely truthful. Passages can be challenging, but that doesn't mean that we start tearing out pages. It means that we devote ourselves to study with confidence because of who God is. This is God's word. Even James chapter 2, verse 24, which, by the way, if you're still out of Ephesians, flip back with me. What God's word teaches is that Christ conquered it all on the cross. He condescended into flesh. 
He lived the perfect life that you could never live. He hung on the cross. He took on the full wrath of God in place of you. He was buried and he rose three days later. He ascended to the Father. He saved you. And the only thing, the only thing that you contributed to your salvation is the sin that you needed to be saved from. That is the glory of the gospel. And this is not something that you squeeze into your life like some sort of sport or some sort of club. You don't just append it on to to your Instagram profile. You cry out. It makes you cry out. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is life transforming because there is no such thing as a saved non-disciple. You are saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. Saving faith works. It's not apathetic knowledge of God like the demons. It's total submission to God like Abraham exemplifies. It's not useless words to someone who needs physical help, but it's selflessly risking your life for the sake of others like Rahab. Saving faith is active faith. It is faith that transforms. It is faith that is completed by works because works are faith on display. So look down at verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If an apple tree bears much fruit, you know it's a healthy tree. If it bears bad fruit with scabs and blemishes, you know it's diseased. Jesus taught that just as a tree is known by its fruit, so also one's heart is known by what they do, by what they say by their works. So, what is what fruit is being produced in your life? We've examined dead faith and we've examined saving faith. It would be foolish if we did not now examine our own faith, looking introspectively based on what James has said. First of all, if you're not a Christian, This may have been a somewhat confusing message. There's a lot of Christian language being thrown around, and I've tried my best to explain it as I go, but I do want to say that you are in desperate need of a Savior. You have sinned against a holy God, and you can be made right with him. If everything I said before was confusing in any way, just hear this. The way you are made right with God is by believing in Jesus Christ. Believing in what he did on the cross, taking the punishment that you deserved so that you can spend eternity with God. By simply putting your trust in Jesus, you will be seen as righteous. There is no complexity there. Salvation is not something you work to attain, but it is something that requires all of you. To truly trust in Jesus means turning from your sin. It means dying to your old ways and becoming more like Jesus. This is a lifelong process and and no one becomes perfect in, in this life. 
but, but we do strive for godliness. So would you repent and believe in the name of Jesus? It truly is the most important decision of your life, and you are in a room full of people who would love to talk to you. Or maybe you're here and you're realizing that you've been sort of a self-proclaimed Christian by name only. I see a lot of this in the South. You say you're a Christian, your life looks nothing like Christ. Now is the time to truly repent and trust fully in Jesus. It's a common phrase that people use. I knew Jesus, at my, I knew Jesus as my Savior at this time, but I didn't know him as Lord until this time. James makes it clear. If you don't know Jesus as Lord, then you don't know him as Savior. It's a package deal. True living faith is transforming faith. Are you a Christian by name only? Do you look no more like Christ than the day you believed in him? You are deceiving yourself. Please repent. Begin putting your sin to death because of the one who died for you. Now, listen, for most of you, uh, before I caused some sort of crisis of faith, thinking, oh, man, I drove past a homeless person this morning on the way to church, and I didn't stop and cook him a meal. Am I even a Christian? Am I even saved? Listen, if you know the Lord, there is nothing that can separate you from him. He, you have your faith in a firm foundation Nothing can shatter it. Nothing can crack it. You can't separate it. You can't sin your way out of grace. So calm down. This isn't because you are unwavering, but because he is. Nothing can remove you from his saving grace. And remember that James is writing to Christians. The main reason why he wrote the passage is not to say, you all were never really saved. It is to say, as people saved by grace, you got to live like it. So do you live like it? Remember, you have the Spirit residing in you, so you are empowered to live a life that is honoring to God by His strength. You cannot help everyone. You cannot be sinless in this life, but you can be pursuing holiness. And James is calling us to walk the talk. When you see someone a brother or sister in physical need? Do you just say, hang in there? Or do you sacrifice your comfort and resources and safety for them? When someone you know is mourning the loss of a loved one, do you send them a text that says, God's in control? Or do you bring them a meal? Do you weep with them? Do you pray for them? Or pray with them? Do you walk with them and comfort them towards your unbelieving family, friends, neighbors, coworkers? Do you exemplify Christ? Are you gracious, forgiving, someone who stands up for righteousness? Do you walk the talk? Do not let your pursuit of doctrine overpower your pursuit of God. Knowing things about God is not the same as knowing God. Even the demons are Trinitarians. Even the demons confess that Christ is God. 
Even the demons know the five solas. But what the demons do not do is count their lives as living sacrifices for the sake of godliness and his glory. I also want to point out, notice that this passage is not so, fo- not so much focused on what you ought not to be doing, but rather what you ought to be doing. It's not saying, don't do this, it's as much as it's saying, do this. Whereas many passages we're familiar with are focused on don'ts, right? Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't joke crudely, don't hate your brother in your heart. This passage is saying, do live out your faith and godliness. It's about having works. To know the right thing and to not do it, uh, to know the right thing to do and to not do it is sin. That's what James says later later in his letter. Uh, It's called the sin of omission. And, And this is what happens when Christians think that they can just chill in their easy boy recliner and not actually do the things that accord with the Christian life. So I also just want to ask, what are you not doing? What could you be doing to pursue Christ greater? Are you not meeting with the body regularly or not taking advantage of of ways that, that you can meet even outside of Sunday mornings? Are you not leading your family and family worship consistently? Are you not giving to the church sacrificially? Are you yelling at the world because of its stupidity, but but not actually sitting down and having a meal with a lost person in hopes of seeing a dead sinner come to Christ? Or or conversely, are you having lots of conversations with non-believers? You see them all the time. You talk to them all the time. They're your best friends. But you've never mentioned Christ or any of your personal convictions because that would be awkward. To know the right thing to do and neglect it is sin. Church, the Christian life is not all about avoiding sinful things. It's also about pursuing righteousness. Be aware of the things that you're not doing and seek them out like a missile. Be analytical about any possible way that you can honor God's name in every facet of your life because you have the spirit, you have been given the opportunity to love others as you have been loved sacrificially, so so why not treasure the opportunity? Why not relish in it? What what is this world? What is your money? What, What is your comfort if you hold it so tight that you lose grip of the one who gave it to you? So are you walking the talk? Would others describe you as someone who would constantly lay down their life, put aside their desires, and go out of their way to serve others? What if that was the most common Christian stereotype? Again, I know that since Christ is not of this world, the world will always hate him and those who follow him in some regard. But listen, if true faith in Christ is exhibited through good deeds, then church, you're the museum and you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And if you shine no light or have no saltiness, then what good is that? 
So where could you serve today? Where can you make your faith visible? I'm sure we all know someone who's hurting right now. Reach out to them. Invite them over for a meal. I'm sure we all know an unbeliever. Talk to them. Learn them. Show that you care about them. And don't avoid the awkward spiritual conversations. What great glory this would bring to God if we walked the talk, if we used our hands to live out our faith. Let's ask the Lord to help us with this. Father, we know that, Lord, you are good. Lord, that you are full of mercy and full of grace, that you would save sinners like us who are your enemies. And so, Lord, we ask that through your power, Lord, that you would give us the strength to love as we have been loved, to give as we have been given, and to honor you with our lives. Lord, help us to do this today and for the rest of our lives, we pray in your name. Amen.